I want you to think of the idea of imitation. And when you hear it, I'm assuming if you're like me, it, mockery comes to mind. Possibly. Like, do you ever imitate people out of mockery? Yes? You're not nice like I'm not nice. I thought so. It's interesting. Like, in my, in my family, it, it's a unique thing. I have an upfront role. So you realize there's a lot to mock, right, with every week? I mean, all the things I say, can you imagine how many mistakes I make? You may listen to one and find a new one today. So there's that piece, but there's even what happens at home. So, for example, one time we were driving through a, a Taco Bell, one of my favorite establishments, by the way, sadly, and, uh, and I was trying to ask the kids what they wanted, and I meant to say option, and I said ashpen. Hey, there's a lot of ashpens you can have. Now, do you think that went by unnoticed? <laughs> to this day, in my family, if someone's asking what we're doing, I don't think, uh, you know how texts autocorrect? You don't have to autocorrect Ashpen, it's there. I think if they write option, it says Ashpen. That's how we speak. And, and in fact, it goes to things that are, are more, they're not always negative. There's lots of great things. So uh, most of my kids play a, an instrument in one way or another. And I play both uh, piano and guitar. And I, when I played piano, I couldn't decide if I was trying to be Keith Green or Elton John. But when my kids play the piano, they have certain licks they play, and they go, oh, there's a dad lick, and so they play it. Well, it's very true in the guitar as well. In fact, you know, one, several of my children play up here, and they will sometimes, while they're playing, they play a little lick that they know I play, and just to see if I notice. So they'll go. That's what they do to me. And the whole thing is they imitate me, which, by the way, I'm just imitating someone that I learned play. But you get the picture of imitation, don't you? And now I actually want you to listen for it and watch how they smile and smirk at me because they do it quite often. But you get the idea of imitation, right? That we do things that the people like us. And I want you to consider that this morning because we're in this series called Everybody Always. It's the idea that Jesus actually calls us to love everyone always. But I want you to understand how he does it. And the way he teaches it is he loves everyone always. And then guess what we're to do? Imitate it. We are actually to become like him. Not imitate it as in it's a caricature, but as we hang around him and are with him, we become like him. I was reminded of this actually yesterday in how people have influenced me and impacted my life uh, Jackson Crum was a mentor to me. Jackson is now a pastor in Chicago, but I served under him in the first church I worked at. And uh, yesterday, I had a, we have someone in the church, a young man who's been in significantly critical care and had a long-term trauma injury, and the family called me to go visit him at the hospital. And so two things happened when I went up there. As I was up there and I'm interacting, I'm remembering times that Jackson took me with him to the hospital, and the things I learned just being with him. He didn't say, hey, I'm going to do this, let's dissect it, and you do what I do. He just loved people, and the way he did it impacted me, and I found myself doing things I learned the way he did them. In the same way, on my drive home yesterday, uh, I have had a deepening call from the Lord, I believe, to pray for us. I would say I've always prayed, but there's been these two words that keep coming, dependence and desperation. And uh, I was in the car driving home, and it's not like I never pray in the car, but I had this memory with Jackson. Jackson used to take me with him 
everywhere he went, we'd go to visit people in hospitals. I'd sit with him when he prepared a message and he'd just explain it to me. And one of the other memories I have is we would be driving around the community talking strategically. And as we're driving, he'd go, hey, we should pray for a while. And I remember the first time he said that, I thought that sounds really spiritual, but I'm really not interested. Now I did it because I was supposed to. But as we began to do it, something changed in me. And yesterday I had this rich time praying for you really meaningful things. I found myself moved to tears at different times, praying for you and those in our community that aren't following Jesus, that are in desperation. And it came back to me, man, Jackson taught me this. I am imitating someone else who's imitating Jesus. You get in the picture? So we're gonna look at a story today that's a, a kind of a, a turning point in one of the accounts, in Matthew's account of Jesus's life. We're gonna look at this, and it's a very important moment but we're gonna look at what Jesus does and I want you to consider not just what he did specifically for Peter, but what we would do to imitate and do the same. That's what I'm hoping you see. Now, where we're gonna be in this is a place called Caesarea Philippi. This is north of Galilee. It means Jesus is moving away from kind of the epicenter of Jewish life into this, what's considered a very pagan community. It's built on a rock, there are temples here, there's this unique cave, we'll come back to that later but I just want you to get the picture that it's a different environment. And you might even ask the question, Jesus is with his disciples, why would he choose to go to this really what we would call a pagan city? It's like saying, hey, we've had this really spiritual time, let's go to Vegas. That, that's kind of a good today equivalency of how we kind of, at least we tend to think about it, not that it's a different place, but we tend to view it that way. So with that in mind, we're gonna look at Matthew chapter 16. And Jesus says, this is how Matthew recalls it. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked the disciples a question. Now, before we get into the question, I just want to point out a pattern. It's not central to the message today, but I think it's important. We imitate Jesus, right? How did Jesus teach his disciples and what did he do? And there's a pattern in this that's helpful to us. Jesus has times of ministry where he advances and where the kingdom advances, and then he always has times of retreat where they pull away from life, they, they teach, they recalibrate, they pray, they worship. In fact, as you look at the New Testament church, this is one of the beautiful things. It, it even tells this beautiful story of four of the early church leaders specifically worshiping and praying. They're on retreat, and God leads them to send two to a new field, and then they go and they advance. You get the picture, retreat, advance. The reason I think that's so important is guess how we live today? We look at our calendars and we go, here's an event, here's an event, here's an event, here's an event, here's an event. We're constantly moving from activity to activity. And do you have any idea the journey in between is where major things happen in the model of Jesus? So I don't want us to just to see he went there. I want you to understand he is retreating and something powerful's happening. So if you leave with nothing else, maybe you'll leave today going, do I ever take times to retreat from life and rebuild, restore, pursue? Because that's a bit of this picture. Now, in the midst of this, he asks him a question. Who do people say the Son of Man is? In other words, what are you hearing about me? Son of Man is a title. We don't need to get into all the nuances of it. It's referring to some unique things of some thing that God has planned for them. And they reply, some say John the Baptist, which by the way would have been kind of a pagan thought because John has been beheaded. So, and Jesus was alive then almost like he moved in and is reincarnated. It's a very confusing thought that they'd think this. 
But then others say Elijah, who's a very significant prophet that will point to the Messiah, Jeremiah similarly, and even other prophets. In other words, lots of people see Jesus that you're unique and you're bringing something to the table that God's been planning. That's what they're saying. And then Jesus, as any good rabbi does, takes it another step. Hey, what about you? Who do you say I am? Now we continue on in response. Peter, as kind of the leader of the group and the one that's off in the mouthpiece, and make no mistake, Peter speaks even when he shouldn't. Do you know how there's people like that in a group? They have no thought of editing. It's just, oh, you want an opinion? I will give it. I may not think, but I will speak. That's Pete. But he says something profound. You are Messiah, the son of the living God. Now, this is the first time particularly this has been said. Messiah, Christos, this idea of anointed one is for any Jew understands, oh, Messiah, literally the one that God promised to bring. And in the midst of Caesarea Philippi, where there's lots of dead gods because they worship gods all over the place, the son of the living God, that has another huge meaning. In other words, Peter has figured out, and he speaks for everybody, we get it. You are him. Now make no mistake, he's not suddenly realizing that Jesus is also divine, that he's the son of God. That comes later. Sometimes people confuse that reading this as if to say, oh, this is speaking something more than at the time it really is. But I want you to see Jesus' response. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah. Blessed are you. Something profound has happened. It's not flesh and blood that revealed this, but my Father in heaven. Now this, for me, in my own spiritual life, has been significant as both a pastor and just a Christ follower loving people. What Jesus is saying is, the way you guys understood it is not because someone reasoned with you and explained it enough, though that can be part of it, but literally... God himself made it clear of who I am. Now, I don't want this to be overly mystical from the sense that when you read that, you think that God opened the heavens and he goes, Peter, you should know Jesus is Messiah. And the clouds part. That's how we kind of picture those things, this really strange mystical revelation. And, and I'll just explain it to you, at least in terms of how I experience it and how many others do. It can be a peace that comes on us. It can be a thought that enters our minds. I, I just know this is true. It can be somewhere where the things come together and we go, I get it. For all the things I've been confused about, I actually get that Jesus is who he said he is. And I want you to understand it both because it's cool to see, but also in your own lives and as you reach out to others. Our faith is not built on what other people believe and we think it's a good idea. It's not saying to us, you know what? This seems the best reasonable option to me. I think I'll go this way. Or, you know, my family does it, and I really want to honor what they do. This is about revelation. And by the way, do you think God wants to reveal to certain people more than others? In case you don't know, the answer is no. God loves to tell us who he is. And I love this passage because it reminds me, every time I have a friend that I'm getting to know more and more, that I'm loving more and more, that is not following Christ, I'm not thinking, how can I convince them? What I'm thinking is I love them and I typically can see the gaps that I know Christ would fill. And for all our discussions and reasoning, I know somewhere Jesus just has to make himself real. Man, you, gotta, you know what a fun journey that is? When someone goes to you, I get it now. Same thing Peter had happen. I, I, I want you to see this isn't just for Peter, it's normative to us. And even though it's not even directly what we're looking at, it's really beautiful to see 
how this happens. Now, what Jesus is going to say next to him is important, but I want you to get a little better context for it, uh, just because I think it's kind of a cool picture for us. I had trouble with this last hour. There we go. Ah, crud. Pay no attention to me. There we go. So I want you to see uh, Caesarea Philippi and just get a few pictures from this. Now, I'm not trying to be exact to where it is, but this is a rock. Caesarea is built around a rock. So that's important as you hear what Jesus says. There are temples all throughout this. So this isn't necessarily where they are, but there's a temple to a god named Pan. In fact, Pan is a, is a pagan god, and the city was actually named after this god for a long time when there was a young leader that ended up taking over the city, Philippi. As a leader, he changed the name to honor him, Caesarea Philippi. But you need to understand there's this God that they're worshiping named Pan. There are other gods that are worshiped in other temples. For example, there's Baal worship, which is just another kind of hedonistic worship. And every emperor had their own worship too. So there are temples to Caesar, meaning we'll worship lots of gods. It's very chic and very much the way to do it. This cave right here was known there as called the gates of hell, the gates of Hades. And the belief was that there were fertility gods that lived beneath here in the waters. There's a, an area of living water under there that it was a gateway into the gods and into their life to new life through death. It was a very strange, mystical understanding. I just want you to see this because that's where Jesus is right now with what he's about to say. We've got this rock. We've got this gates of hell. We've got all these different temples to all these different gods. And that's just a backdrop. It doesn't mean he means necessarily everything to connect to it, but it does connect in imagery. Now he gives Peter this wonderful blessing. I tell you, you're Peter. You are Peter. Now he's known as Simon. He uses specifically a name that Peter actually means rock, uh, and he uses that name for him. So he says, you're Peter, and on this rock, I will build my church. Now, it's just a beautiful picture in case you don't see it. You're a rock, I'm gonna build on this rock, I'm gonna build my church. Now, scholars debate this, and I can't say it with definition, but I find it fascinating that Jesus decides to speak of his church and this rock in a climate that's incredibly pagan and kind of they would be despising of what God is doing and what Jesus would do. It's kind of a cool picture. Why would Jesus announce this here in this culture? And yet he does. Even in this messy place where you think nobody has interest, man, I'm gonna move and I'm gonna build my church. And it's him, it's his church. And church simply, this word ecclesia, means the people who have witnessed what he's done. And by witness, it doesn't mean they've seen it, it means they've experienced it. In other words, my church are the people that I'm loving and transforming and I'm going to use to transform the world. And guess what? We're going to go into the darkest places to do it. Great picture. And Pete, you're at the center of this. All of these blessings he gives are individual and Pete seems to be at the beginning of it and the center of it, even though it intends to reach out from him. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. This is a picture from the Old Testament over and over again, that when Messiah comes, he will have the keys of David, the keys to open a door that's never been opened and shut a door that cannot be shut. In other words, all the authorities given to Messiah. And guess who he gives it to? Peter. In case you don't know, that seems like a bad idea. I just want you to get this. If he looks at what Peter has done, you're kind of going, Jesus, I like your optimism. Not sure it's misguided or not. He doesn't even stop there. What you bind will be bound, 
And whatever you loose will be loosened in heaven, not just on earth. In other words, guess what, Peter? I'm going to take you, and despite whatever's happened in your life, you get to be a major part of what I'm going to do. I'm going to build my church. You're going to be at the center of this. I'm going to give you authority and the keys of the kingdom. Whatever you bind will be bound. Whatever you loose will be loosed. Now, I will tell you, without going long-winded into it, this has been a highly debated text in the life of the church of how we view leadership and authority. And I'm not trying to get into that today. I want us to see it as imitating what he does for Peter were then to pass on. But I'll just say this. I want you to see how it's exemplary of how Peter's supposed to be part of it, not alone. So we get to Acts 15, which is after Jesus has risen and the church is making decisions and they come together as a group of leaders and they say this, it seemed good to us and the Holy Spirit and they set out the course of what's bound and what's loosed. In other words, it's a collective group that decide in leadership. So I don't want you to hear this as it's unique to Peter. It's how God wants to impart and deal with the leaders to then be the church. It's exemplary, not just individual. So I just want you to see that to begin with as we look at this. That specifically, what he's saying is, I'm going to build blessing and life through all this. Now, here's what's fascinating. You would think after Jesus said this, it would continue in a new trajectory, wouldn't you? Pete, I have just told you. Man, you're going to be the, the foundation of this the church I'm building, my church, you're going to get to have authority in the keys. And by the way, you're going to be bind and loose. Now, do you know that Pete's best moments are not ahead of him? Just after this, just after this, Jesus tells him that he's supposed to die and suffer and rise again. Peter's response, never, Lord. This will never happen to you. In other words, what Peter's saying is, okay, Jesus has said the way this is going to happen is I will die, I will sacrifice, and I will rise. And Peter's going, we will have none of it. He's literally telling Jesus, don't do it the way it's supposed to change. I want it my way. I don't want there to be suffering. I don't want there to be struggle. Now, Jesus responds, and guess what he calls him? He calls him a name. It's not a good name. Do do you know what he calls him? Satan. It's like church lady revisited. Oh, I don't know. Could it be Satan? Like you just go, what a horrible thing to say. He just told them that you're going to be at the foundation of this. I'm going to give you authority. I'm going to give you the keys. I'm going to let you bind and loose. And Pete's response is, to be like Satan? Would you think that disqualified him? It doesn't. Are you getting a picture? There's a difference between what he does and what Jesus sees he can become. It keeps happening. It's not alone. They go up soon after this to a mountain. Not all of them, just a few of them. And in this mountain, Jesus becomes this shiny, glorified white, something they can't explain. And Moses and Elijah show up. And Peter, again, speaks without thinking. Hey, let's build three shelters. And God the Father from heaven interrupts him while a cloud of glory surrounds them. I mean, tell me you're not freaked out like I shouldn't have spoken. And he just says, this is my son whom I love Will you, he doesn't say, will you shut up, but it's implied as far as I'm concerned. Would you shut your mouth and just listen to him? In other words, you're missing this. You're not getting it right. What you're doing is wrong, but man, I still love who you're becoming. Do you see the difference in this? And it keeps happening. It's not by itself. Then Jesus tells Peter, along with others, you know what? All of you are going to be scattered. I'm about to go to the worst part of my life. I'm going to go to my death and destruction. And instead of being with you, you'll scatter. Peter's response, oh, never, never. I will never do that. In case you don't know the story, Jesus warns him three times he'll deny him. And after he's taken away, happens once, 
Happens twice, happens a third time. And when it happens a third time, he actually hears a rooster crow, which is part of what Jesus told him would happen, and they make eye contact. Tell me you wouldn't feel incredibly broken and defeated. Man, I know a while ago you told me I'd be part of this, I'd be foundational. No way, look what I'm doing. Man, it's misguided to think this could be different. So badly so that after Jesus rises, it tells us that Peter goes out to fish. In essence, he goes back to his old job, giving up what he thinks he could have. And Jesus meets him on the shore of his failure. The very story we get our name from as a church. He not only says, do you love me, restoring him, but he says, guess what, feed my sheep. In other words, hey, remember what I told you a long time ago? I'm gonna build my church, you're gonna be at the center of it. Oh, by the way, I'm gonna give you the keys. And in case you didn't get it, you're gonna bind and loose. In all this failure of what you do, I see who you're turning into. In all the failures of what you think and act, I still see something different. And it doesn't just all fix, by the way, when Jesus dies and rises and Peter's even filled with the Spirit. He's the voice of the apostles early on. He's the one speaking of what Jesus has done and thousands are responding. But in the midst of that, he's still troubled. In fact, one of the statements he makes in quiet is, I have never eaten anything impure. It's the idea that I would never go near a Gentile because they're unclean and they're not of God. He gets it wrong. And Jesus still lovingly is correcting him, saying it's not what you do, it's who you're turning into. I want you to get the picture of how Jesus sees him. It's powerful and it's a profound. We're in a series right now that Bob Goff, Bob Goff is the author of, Everybody Always. Each week we have growth group studies and so we're watching a video that he talks through a different facet. And this is the very facet of this week that you'll be doing in groups. If you're not in a group, you still can get in one or if you wanna even read the book, there's great information about it. But I wanna show you just a little clip from what Bob says. It's a story he tells of being invited down to Orlando to be a part of a conference. He arrives in the airport in Orlando. He sees a man holding a sign that says, Bob. He kind of mistakenly thinks it must be someone famous. And then he sees his name at the bottom. He realizes it's a limo. And then this is what his reaction is. Take a look. Uh, and this guy is standing by a big black limousine. And at first I was just gonna pass him by and go get a cab, but then I thought, you know, I've never been in a limo before. If they dropped all the cash, I'm going for a ride. So I walked up to him and I said, I'm Bob. <laughs> and he said, but who are you? He wanted to know if I was famous. And I said, like, no, 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 I'm just Bob. It's been a disappointment for me too. And we got in the back of his limo and started driving through Orlando. And I'd never been to Orlando before. And after about 15 or 20 minutes of talking to this guy, I said, you know what? I've never been to Orlando, but if somebody asked me, what do you think of everybody in Orlando? I'd say, they're terrific, and you know why? You're a nice guy. And if you'd been really mean to me, if somebody said, what do you think of everybody in Orlando? I would have said, I think they're all mean. You wanna know how to love the people around you? You wanna know how to love everybody always? You start talking behind each other's backs, but talk about the right stuff. Talk about who people are turning into. Say, have you seen Sally? Have you seen who she's turning into? Seen that pastor? Have you seen who he's turning into? Find these beautiful things, talk it up, don't make it up. And you know what? You'll find more of Jesus and you'll find more of the way he sees you because he sees who we're turning into and here's the deal, we're turning into love. 
His story goes on. I wanted to have you see more of it, but I, I know it'll be time for the groups. It's great, the rest of what happens. But I want to hear, have you see what he said and hear it again. We don't see people for what they do, but for who they're turning into. You should hear the rest of his interaction with this limo driver. It's fascinating what happens in his disposition in general towards people. And make no mistake, that was Jesus' disposition towards Paul. He didn't look at him and saw what he did because if you saw his list of failures, you'd have said he's not qualified. But he saw who he was turning into. Think of it this way. Uh, this week, I've, I've been reading through a, a book that's kind of, it's an iconic book looking at different things over church history and different pieces of art, different things that have been written. This week, I happened to see Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel they were writing about, which is a whole interesting story on its own. Now, when Michelangelo paints that, you have two qualifications that make it a great work of art. The first is that Michelangelo's a master, master sculptor and master painter. So the actual nature of him is a masterful thing. But it's also that the work itself is a masterpiece, right? So you look at it and you go, it's made by the master and it's an amazing work of art. That's what makes for a masterpiece. Jesus is the creator of life, isn't he? Do you know that he made you? Do you understand that every person on the planet is a work of God? So the master made you. And by the way, did you know that you're a masterpiece? So what do you think we should see in you? What you do and fail? Or who he made you to be and who he wants you to turn into? I want you to get a picture of this because, again, it's imitation. Jesus sees this in the failures of the disciples, but how do we often operate in the church? We tend to look at ourselves, and if we don't see other people this way, chances are we haven't really received and understood how much God cherishes us. But we're called to change and give it away too, aren't we? I was reminded of this, uh, this current week. A friend of mine who I'd gotten to know uh, years ago, when we first met, he was living with his girlfriend, and... Uh, you know, I'm a pastor, so I come over. Do you know what people do when they're living with their, and you, you visit them? First, they try to explain it away, and then they're like, oh, I know, and tell you all sorts of funny things that they just feel embarrassed, like I'm gonna kind of get on him about it. But the comment that got me after knowing him for over a year was he said, every time I see my parents, they remind me that I'm living in sin. It's all they talk to me about and how I need to change that. And all he said to me was, I just appreciate that while I know you don't think it's the way to live, you love me and you see something different in me. He eventually came to faith. They actually eventually got married. And he's living in a different way today. But it was a very big lesson to me to realize I always have this tendency to think I need to fix things of how people live and not begin to see them as Jesus does. It's not what they do. It's what they're turning into. In the same way, I want to challenge us today. Do you realize you are the where Jesus has put the hope? You are now the people that he says, I'm building my church through you. You're the ones I'm giving authority to. You're the ones I'm saying, as I've said to you, I see who you're turning into, not what you've done. Start doing that with others. And make no mistake, this is individual, but it's communal. You know, many of the people that I love that are my friends that are not following Jesus, where I look and the more I love them and know them, the more I can see how Jesus has something for them they don't see and how much I long for it. But what I love is I'm not the only one doing that. Many of you are. Because communally, 
we're each doing it in different settings. And God's using every one of us to love everybody always. Not for what they do, but for who they're turning into. I want to encourage you as you study this week, as you look at people, to be receiving more of what Jesus' love is for you. That's what we call radical love, which, by the way, is our mission. Radically loving, growing together in Christ. We receive it, and guess what? We give it. We imitate and do what Jesus has done for us. I see in you what you're turning into, not what you do and what you've done. Let me pray for us. God, I ask as we continue on this week, as we'll step out of here today, as we celebrate communion even before we do, Lord, I pray that you will meet each one of us. Where any of us have settled for what I've done, you don't understand, you can't see, there's no way God would say I'm a masterpiece, that that would begin to just be blown out of the water. And people here would begin to hear, people online would begin to hear, you are my masterpiece, I love you, and I'm gonna turn you into something you've never even imagined. May we know that you dream for our lives, that you made us each in your image to be part of bringing your love, your kingdom to a world in need. And in the same way, God, will you help us to begin to see others the same way that you, Lord, you, are calling us to show them and to see them the way you do, that we would see who they're turning into and not what they've done. God, lead us to that end in your name. Amen.